Hey, it's Katherine Rayberg. Welcome back to the Nacro Dialogue on Diversity, Episode 9. In this episode, we welcome Meg Greger, Assistant Director of Corporate Relations, Major Gifts, and Capital Projects at Washington University in St. Louis. Meg leads us through a conversation on accessibility, defined as the design of products, devices, services, vehicles, or environments so as to be usable by people with disabilities which for many can be an unfamiliar or even uncomfortable topic. In her journey, Meg learned about the importance of accessibility through the work she did in the nonprofit space, where she gained knowledge, expertise, and firsthand experiences in creating accessible work environments. We also discussed opportunities to partner with industry to support accessibility programming, as digital accessibility for people with disabilities is a front and center priority for our corporate partners. We also discussed the importance of promoting accessibility within your own organization and tools that can be available to access accessibility maturity. I hope you enjoyed this session. Welcome back to the NACRO Dialogue on Diversity. It has been a little bit and I am so excited to be starting 2022 with my good friend and colleague, Tony. Hey, Tony, how are you? I'm good. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can right. hear you. Yeah, this technical world, we're trying to get better. You think we would have mastered all of this technology by now, but we're, I guess every time we do this, we get a little bit better. So it's good to hear and see you. I'm sorry I missed you at the regional NACRO uh, midwinter workshop, although I did participate some of that virtually. So Yes, it was good to see you. Good to see you virtually. And I said you've mastered the art of the away Zoom picture to make it look like you're still there live and talking. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So I'm looking forward. One day I'll actually meet you in person. But we've enjoyed this dialogue around diversity for almost a year now. So I appreciate yeah. uh, including me in this process. And I think we're both learning, and hopefully our colleagues around the country and in in the network of academic corporate relations officers are learning as well. And we're bringing in a newer NACRO member today. It's really exciting yeah. to have a guest that's already a NACRO member. So, Tony, we don't have to sell Meg as we talk with her today about joining. Oh, She's yeah. in. She's, She's in. in. Right. <laughs> so, Meg, if you'd like yeah. to introduce yourself and talk about where you're from and your role, that would be awesome. Yeah, so my name is Meg Geiger. Um, I am the Assistant Director of Corporate Relations at Washington University in St. Louis, which is a role I began at um, in June of 2021. So new to NACRO, new to my role here at WashU, um, but I've had a few years um, working in fundraising and corporate fundraising as well. So thank you so much for having me. Well, excellent. And WashU is one of the schools that we at Case Western Reserve University benchmark against in a friendly way, of course, but we have peer institutions around the country that we like to compare notes with, and you guys are one of them. So that's good to hear as well. Well, thank you for taking the time to meet with us. I, I got excited. I was so appreciative that you reached out to just do a little intro call with me and share about the new book club that you're starting for NACRO. So a little plug for your upcoming event. Yeah, let's hear about that. Yeah. 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 So Talk it's kind of that. like a it's a bring your own book club. Um, so it won't be the kind where we necessarily tell you what to read and everyone reads the same thing, but um, just everyone kind of brings something um, to the meetup, a book that has inspired them or made them think differently about fundraising and corporate fundraising and um, just to kind of get some good discussions going. And, you know, that 
being someone who loves to read about my work, um, it's always great to also just hear the recommendations. So, you know, someone will bring a book and then I'll read it next month because it sounds like, you know, they took a lot away from it. So I'm really excited. We've got a really nice group to talk about, um, you know, different inspiring uh, books they've been reading. And I think we've got a lot of also like kind of diverse subject matter. It's not all necessarily like specific to fundraising you know some of it's just about like leadership and team building sure. and things like that so i'm really excited and i'm hoping we can uh, make it you know a regular thing meg what are some of the titles or uh, that you that you've looked at so far or do yeah. You, yeah so um i and i will share with you i'm my uh my panel you know some of them they want to surprise they want to bring a surprise book oh, but okay. i will share um so the book i'm reading is um or i read i should say is uh decolonizing wealth okay. um which right. is a great great book um kind of written from the point of view of a foundation of someone on the foundation side um not on the fundraiser side though the author did work as a fundraiser as well okay. and um he really talks about um you know his indigenous roots and how when you look at wealth you have to kind of keep in mind the barriers um and i think with corporate wealth especially um you know there's a lot there were a lot of barriers that not everyone could access that money for a long time and not everyone could build up a business like um you know those in privilege could so it was a it's a really good book uh highly recommended if you want to check it out and then you know, come to the meetup um, and you can hear me talk about it some more. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think I may have to um, try to get that on my calendar. Um, I don't think I read enough. And if you're not reading, you're really not learning. And we're in a complex world where it's always interesting the different types of skills. When we say fundraisers, we're very general, but there's a lot of different types of skills and there's a lot of different types of research and understanding that you need to build when you're trying to build these relationships with our corporate partners because you're dealing with people as well and you're dealing with their perspectives individually and in their roles with their respective companies so um, leadership and understanding different sectors and different uh, populations and all of that i think is all critical so sounds like you guys are on something that's going to really bring hopefully a lot of our members will participate and um I'm not sure what the format is, but if it's uh, if it's virtual for now and then maybe meeting up in regions of the country or whatever, um, I think it's a great idea. So I, I'm looking forward to hear more about it as you guys begin to publicize it to the membership. Well, thank you. And I told Meg, I'm unfortunately in a phase of life, a poor excuse, but young kids and working full time, it's hard to grab a book and sit down, but I love a good podcast. So it, that's kind of my learning. Um, I love listening to all kinds of podcasts. And that's why I was so excited that we uh, started this one for NACRO. And now kind of transitioning to the topic of the day, Megan had, Meg had shared with me that she had some, done some work previously in the accessibility space, a really important and critical dimension when we think about diversity and inclusivity, and um, a topic we really haven't tackled as a NACRO organization. And so wanted to welcome Meg today to share her insights and experiences around accessibility. Excellent. Yeah, so I'll kind of share with you first just kind of how I got to be involved in like the accessible space and accessible fundraising. Um, so I think like many fundraisers, um, my journey started off where I was actually um, like a frontline service worker 
for a nonprofit. Um, this the nonprofit I was at um, worked with families. Actually, the whole nonprofit worked. Um, it was birth to death for people with developmental disabilities. Um, but the program I was in was specific with families of young children who had a disability um, and were usually involved in some sort of like first steps or at home um, early intervention therapy. And a lot of times those families would be told like, oh, well, you know, try this, you know, this toy will help them work on this milestone. And then once they master that milestone, it's like, okay, get that toy out of here. We're bringing in a new one. We're like moving on to the next milestone. And so the program I worked in lent those toys to families so that they wouldn't have to, you know, dig into their pockets to, to pull that out. And we were fully, you know, grant funded. We didn't get any sort of government or, um, any sort of institutional funding. We were just 100% grant funded. So that was how I got involved with fundraising at first. I was working on, you know, collecting family stories and um, yeah, like just writing little narratives about what I did every day and doing, we had to do monthly grant reports, which was uh, a lot of fun. <laughs> um, Accountability. Yeah, no, but it was a great program and I loved it. Um, but I did after about four years, I was starting to really it was starting to really wear on me where I knew that, like, I didn't think that I could sustain a career in frontline service work. Um, but I still really wanted to, you know, make an impact and, um, you know, work with communities. I didn't want to just like, you know, leave nonprofit work altogether. Um, so I started to look into um, doing more with grant writing and fundraising um, and ended up going over to a small local nonprofit here in St. Louis. Um, it's called Starcloth Disability Institute, and they work with individuals who are mostly college graduates who are have a disability but are competing in the job market with everybody else um, you see on LinkedIn. So it was a um, really you know, interesting, it wasn't like a lot of the other job placements for people with disability organizations. It was a very small organization. Um, and you know, 100% of our client base were, had some sort of um, need for an accommodation in the workplace. So I became very familiar kind of with those accommodations. The other really unique thing about where I worked was that I was, I think the first person they had hired that did not have a significant disability. Um, my supervisor, who was the director of development, was legally blind. Um, our program staff, a few of them, many of them were wheelchair users. We also had some who were also legally blind. Um, and even the founder herself, she had, um, you know, mental health disability that, you know, um, and her husband, um, Max Starkloff, was a uh, quadriplegic. So that was kind of what motivated them to start that organization. And it was, I definitely had to learn quickly, you know, how to make things adaptable for the staff that I was working with, um, but then also for our clients. Um, we did serve a very large population of clients who were low vision or blind, or um, and as well as the low hearing and deaf community. We also did have, as I mentioned, like a lot of people who were wheelchair users. And then we did have some neurodivergent um, clients. Um, we saw a good amount of folks that, um, and I'll just, um, yeah, sorry, that had uh, all of a sudden every like letter, uh, OCD, uh, MS, 
muscular dystrophy, all of those little letters uh, are flying in my head. But we also served a lot of um, folks who um, did have dyslexia. And so there was a lot of accessibility accommodations that we had to keep in mind when we were putting out materials and when we were redesigning our website, which we did during my time there, and when we were planning events especially, we really wanted to make sure to keep um, accessibility in mind. So it was something that I became very, had to become very familiar with very quickly. Um, I did actually help lead the website redesign and um, did some training in accessible web design. And accessible design is now something that I'm really passionate about because I did Another little fun fact, I did um, work in design when I was in college. It was what I had originally thought I wanted to do when I went to Mizzou. Um, but then I didn't want to do the J school. I just like wanted to be an artist. So I decided against going through their formal graphic design program. And then when I got out of that, I was like, oh, I don't really want to do that either. I want to do social work and nonprofit work. So, uh, but I had done a lot, so much design work and I've never been taught or even mentioned accessible design and what that looks like and what that means and how just like accessible design with homes and buildings, it doesn't have to look accessible. It can look beautiful and still be creative and still, you know, be accessible. So that was kind of, um, how I got there. Um, after working at Starcloth, I actually founded a nonprofit here in St. Louis called Festibility with a friend of mine. It is an annual celebration of the anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, which now I just serve on the board of. Um, and my my friend who was my co-founder and another good friend of mine, um, they do run it. Um, and they're members of like the disability community as well as um, family members of people in the disability community, which I, you know, I'm just glad that um, that organization is kind of run with representation that's a, now. That's a great story and and how you've been able to kind of learn and then be a, be an, an entrepreneur, an intrapreneur and an entrepreneur in the space as well. As you moved over to the higher ed space, what have you learned about, because you talked about um, accessible design, so it makes me think of any number of technical and STEM related and, and innovation related opportunities where maybe engineering schools and other schools on our respective campuses are doing research and designing or working with corporate partners to design the tools that we need to make available, right? For folks that have different types of, uh, of disabilities or challenges. And so to make things more accessible, for example, at Case Western Reserve, we have a group in biomedical engineering that's, that's called human fusion, where we've got the ability now and the research is early stage for those who may have lost a limb. So who is a, a paraplegic or quadriplegic who has lost the use of a hand, where we can we can use um, telemetry and in, in, in engineering to connect with the brain and the nerves in the brain so that now a prosthesis because of the way we're doing this you actually can recreate the feeling of touching your wife's hand or your mm -hmm. husband or your spouse's hand your significant other or picking up a child or picking up a cup or doing a surgery 100 miles away in another city so talk about what you've discovered so far 
about some of the opportunities in that space. Yeah, well, that's amazing to hear about that research. That is really exciting stuff. Um, yeah, and I will admit a lot of the accessible design I um, have worked in is kind of in relation to like print and web design. And I will say I was very pleased when I came on at WashU to find that um, they were already, it was something they were already exploring. Um, you know, they were relaunching our advanced website with um, accessibility in mind. Um, things just like, you know, making sure that text is lined up, that you don't have, you know, a thousand different fonts and, um, you know, words kind of jumping all over the place. Um, but then even small things like um, just making sure, you know, when you're putting a button on a web page, it doesn't just say, you know, click here. It, um, you know, it'll say click here to find more resources about, you know, our scholars program um, so that someone with a screen reader can really access that. But yeah, it's um, there have been some really interesting projects that I've gotten to work on, even in my short time so far here at WashU, um, looking at um, accessible design in like spaces um, for our OT program. Um, sorry, our occupational therapy program. Um, you know, WashU partners with um, a local center for independent living. Um, they run a um, accessible gym with trainers who are trained to, um, you know, work with people with disabilities to make sure that they're still meeting those physical fitness goals and, um, you know, kind of staying as healthy as they can. Um, so they're really, I mean, it's, it's amazing because once you start talking about accessibility, you realize that like it really does touch every part of someone's life and there's ways to innovate it in every field um, imaginable to uh, to bring in more accessibility. I'm so glad you brought the topic up. I actually had my first exposure um, probably three or four years ago. Microsoft is a partner to our campus and Illinois has a long history of accessibility. I think it was um, our campus that invented curb cuts because we had so many wounded veterans coming back to our campus after the war. And um, so I kind of understood physical accessibilities. I took a history of disability course as an undergrad here, but then Microsoft approached us and said, um, let's look at ways to improve digital accessibility on campus. And we formed a, a partnership called the Lighthouse Accessibility Program. And it was really shining, kind of being a beacon of light to attract students that might have some type of disability to be um, on our campus and feel very welcome from a digital accessibility perspective. And so they made investments um, in our College of Applied Health Sciences. They actually have a certificate program called the IADP, and it's based on getting a certificate around web development and programming to be accessible. To be so accessible. that was that was just phenomenal to learn about that, number one. Um, we also had another professor named Lawrence Ongrave who runs a class transcribe project where it's all about real-time real transcription of lectures. And they found not only did it help those students that might have had a disability, but it was an equalizer for the entire classroom and outcomes were improved for the entire student body that were taking that course. So incredible the impact that real-time um, transcription can have. Um, and then the third pillar of that partnership was around neurodiversity and supporting students with autism and getting them support services around career readiness, um, resumes, workforce skills. And um, it was just really eye-opening to me. And I think that's probably why I was drawn to this topic when you just mentioned it quickly in our conversation, Meg, that 
I do think it's important um, as corporate relations officers, if you haven't had an opportunity to be exposed to the topic of accessibility, now that you're listening, take some time to educate yourself and understand the importance of the digital accessibility component. Yeah, Maybe I have a question for both of you guys is how would our colleagues around the country develop an, an inventory tool, if you will, of how we might assess what's going on, on our campus, uh, where the gaps are and where, as you have just given example, Catherine, of where corporate partners who have a vested interest in this space can invest with us. I mean, because in our role, we're trying to get corporate partners to look at partnering with us. But we have to know what the challenges or opportunities are on our respective campuses. And you guys have both listed a number of those things. And maybe that's an exercise for NACRO to say, here's kind of a, an inventory model to say everything from the student access to, I mean, the COVID has already taught us that there's different challenges with, with teaching and, and, and researching and accessibility in that space. And I know, and, and, and we're seeing it at the in the secondary school level with uh, high schools and, and schools in our area in Cleveland. Um, but then we got the research that like we've got the biomedical research that we're doing around um, having the ability to, to recreate nerve uh, feeling um, because the brain kind of remembers what that is and we can make that feel like a reality. Um, and we don't even we don't even begin to know what kind of applications there are for those of us who may not have an accessibility problem to all of those of us that do. And arguably, many of us will have a challenge at some point in our life. So uh, that's why this work is so critical. So I'd be interested in how we could, as a as a as a NACRO, inform. And this might be a workshop. Maybe we might have to put you to work a little bit more. This mm -hmm. might be a workshop this summer at the national to say, here's kind of what you need to be looking at across your campus. Certainly, there's going to be folks on campus that own part of this in their in the operational side of campus and all of that, and in the building side of campus. But then, how do we have a good understanding of it so we're in the front of the right companies at the right time to support that. Yeah, and I think um, this is definitely one where we can, you know, go to our corporate partners for that advice. Um, you know, like Catherine just mentioned with Microsoft and I actually right. did work with, they had a um, someone who worked for their company whose title was accessibility evangelist. Mm -hmm. And wow. I loved that. And I got to meet Megan and she was wonderful. She's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And um, but yeah, and so when I learned about um, accessible web design, um, I learned from someone who was employed at the time by Wells Fargo. Now she's with Edward Jones, but those are two companies that are looking to really make their web materials accessible because, you know, as you move into that phase of your life where you're looking more at those investments and less at income from a job, you might find that, oh yeah, I'm not seeing things as well as I used to. Um, so, you know, accessibility is really important for those companies. And so many of the companies that we already partner with, you know, are putting DEI um, and IDEA at the forefront of, you know, their companies. And I think we have a lot we can learn from them and it's just one of those ways we can engage a little bit deeper and kind of you know show them that like their input is you know so valued um and then also just working with your the students um i always say you know the best the best expert is the person who needs it and um there's also um there's a kind of a term that was 
popularized during the kind of original um, ADA where it was nothing about us without us. Um, so kind of just always making sure that whenever we do have these conversations around accessibility, that the people we're talking about are in the room. Uh, what about from the faculty side? I mean, we talked about students. What about how we make accessibility to attract and retain good faculty talent in all areas? We need to be, as much as we're looking for the next diverse candidate um, in a underrepresented minority group or something of that nature, how do we begin to look at that from the standpoint of faculty as and staff, I guess, as universities recruit talent um, to make sure that we're um, addressing the, the, the great talent that's out there that that may have an accessibility challenge, which which I'm sure in the past it, uh, it could have been a barrier in some way. Yeah, no, it's funny because uh, my trained response when I was working at Starkloff a few years ago was always like, well, we'll, we'll work with you as a consultant and da 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 da. <laughs> but um, no, there are, I mean, there definitely are, I think every market has, um, you know, a nonprofit partner that will, you know, work with you on hiring. Um. I mentioned our campus did go through um, some support from Microsoft, a maturity model exploration with an organization acronyms, but it's, um, G3ICT, and they really did a multiple week deep dive. It was all done um, virtually because it was during COVID, but we made an exhaustive list of, of key stakeholders across our campus that they met with and interviewed and basically did kind of an internal audit to see how mature our accessibility was of our campus. And so it was a really good mirror and I'd say ruler stick of how we're doing, areas for improvement, so that's definitely something as a campus and as a university they could you could look at hiring an outside firm to come in and do some maturity modeling around your accessibility. Catherine, would that be something we could showcase maybe at a future um, national conference? Because to me, knowing what your inventory and capabilities are and the maturity, as you call it, of those capabilities on campus also would allow us to better connect with corporate partners that have a vested interest in either the tools of the industry of accessibility or the talent side of accessibility as as Meg has already said. So I think that would be something that we should um, um, leverage the gifts of our newest member here and, and really leverage that because to me there's a real opportunity for companies to invest where they're going to make a difference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is something that affects a lot of folks. I mean, it, it is really, and we don't want to leave any talent on the sideline because of an accessibility, because we're not accessible as a university, either by technology or by physical places, which is what most people think of the ADADA, they think of ramps and doors, but they don't think of all the other things that challenge you if you have accessibility issues. Yeah, and that's another thing that's it's also interesting that um, kind of COVID brought to light was, um, you know, when I worked at um, Starhoff Disability Institute, it was pre-pandemic, um, and we would have candidates say all the time, like, you know, I can do this job. This job is mostly computer-based. I just don't, you know, have reliable transportation because my, um, you know, my disability prohibits me from driving. 
Um, can I do this job from home? And the number of employers that would say, no, this job can't be done from home. Right. And uh, we found out that that was not true <laughs> in 2020, 2021, that like many of these jobs can be done from home. And it has made, I think, a lot of employers rethink accessibility and it has opened a lot of doors for talent, um, which I'm, you know, if we're going to take any benefit from the past two years, I'll, I'll take that one. What about the training of managers? In, in most of our campuses now have diversity and inclusion training, so how to deal with different cultures, different faiths, different racial backgrounds, uh, implicit bias, and all the things that we've been talking about, particularly in the last several years. Um, do you think that, and based on your experience, because you've been on the nonprofit and on the, on the, the community side, are we doing enough to train our managers and our deans and our faculty and those who have to manage and supervise and lead people around accessibility as maybe many of us have some bias in that area? Mm. It's unconscious. So what are we doing about that? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of um, discomfort, I think, in the conversation around disability. You know, a lot of times people, when I talk to them, they're like, oh, wait, so you just say disability, you don't say, you know, special needs or differently abled. And a lot of times when, you, when you're like, well, I'm not 100% sure, so I'm just gonna say nothing. And I'm just not gonna go talk to that person. And you think that like, okay, so I'm not gonna offend them. But what also you, you don't realize you're doing is by having more conversation, you're just like making yourself more comfortable and it's going to benefit you know everyone people with disabilities and you know yourself as an ally um i do use the word disability because that is the term that the community deemed that they kind of um chose to describe themselves so um i think that that is the correct term to use and um that was actually a lot of our um basis for founding festibility was just wanting to get the st louis community to interact with members of the disability community just to become more comfortable and to realize that you know there's more things that were that keep us the same than make us different and things like that all those nice fuzzy feelings but yeah we um i think that there are a lot of implicit bias trainings out there and honestly i do believe that um what you kind of find in diversity training it also applies you know to when you're discussing um diverse abilities and um, disability it is it's not you know so different of a population and it also though it does require you to kind of open your mind and be a little creative i think the one area i think managers they can struggle with is just well we've never done it that way before so i don't understand how this accommodation will work and just think you know having to think creatively and truly asking yourself what does this job require what does it truly require and what do i just kind of think it needs or what are the we've always put in the just job description that you need to be able to lift 30 pounds how often has this job actually gone and lifted 30 pounds yeah so that even in there exactly yeah meg just incredible insights here and i think really valuable um i think like you said so often we probably maybe just completely shy away from it and i think that you have to get comfortable you probably will make mistakes um, but there's a lot of grace and the more you engage and learn um, the better person that you're going to be so i think 
having this dialogue today hopefully will really help our members in NACRO understand that this is such an important and critical topic. It is a, a wonderful area and space for partnership. Um, there is a really strong need for a talent pipeline of a very diverse um, set of students. And I love Tony's points around thinking about also our faculty and our own employees and our own organization. So thank you so very much. I know everybody is moving so quickly um, that you took the time to connect with us on a Friday, snowy Friday afternoon. Um, but wanted to say thank you. And um, sounds like maybe you can uh, start an offshoot of a book club podcast uh, to keep the topics going. But Tony and Meg, final comments from you. Just thank you, Meg, for sharing not only your experience and your journey to understand this space, but helping us to A, be aware of it and B, to make it a part of our, our business um, efforts on behalf of our respective universities. No, and thank you guys so much. Thank you for welcoming this conversation. Um, yeah, like Catherine said, I know it can sometimes be like awkward or difficult. You're like, oh, like I don't want to even invite that because I might look bad. But, you know, just holding the space for these conversations is so important. And, um, you know, it's just something that it's always going to drive progress. So thank you guys. Thank you.